Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Oh, wow. I am so excited because today we are going to reveal the secret to how people really feel about animals, certain animals in particular, the animals who are killed in the greatest number in particular. And we're learning about this in order to be able to change people's hearts and minds. So I want to go straight out to Zach Waldirk uh, of Faunalytics, which is an incredible nonprofit that dives deep into statistics and studies and all the things that I do really, really a lot to avoid. I'm not a statistics person, but these statistics tell the story. And until you have the information, how can you affect change? So Zach, take it away. What exactly, thanks for looking right in that camera eye, right at the top of your screen. Um, What exactly uh, are you studying and why? Yeah, so Faunalytics, we, we study a lot of different things, uh, sort of all over the animal advocacy movement. And we're, we're a research organization more so than a, a boots on the ground organization. Our, our aim is to help the people who are actually doing the advocacy work more directly. We're trying to build capacity in the movement. And we do that in a few different ways. We have our, our research library, which uh, has thousands of, of short summaries of academic research that's been published and which has applications for animal advocates. So um, for the folks like you, Jane, that, that maybe uh, are less interested in reading the statistics because it can be, it can be pretty dense sometimes. Um, we, we try to avoid having that really academic sounding language so that people can you know, um, go to our website and, and read those summaries so that they can apply that to their actual work. Um, we also do, uh, like you were mentioning, uh, original research on a variety of topics. So that ranges from uh, people's beliefs about chickens and fishes to what comes up for people who are you know, newly vegan or vegetarian, how that affects their behavior. Um, all of that's available for free on our website. You know, uh, in the scheme of things, not a lot of rigorous research has been done in the animal advocacy space. So there's still a lot of questions uh, left to explore. And then Finally, I just want to say that uh, we also do pro bono work to support animal advocates. So one of the ways we do that is uh, we have weekly office hours where animal advocates can just drop in and ask their research related questions, you know, whether they're trying to launch a survey or they're looking for data or help analyzing data, we can provide sort of free one-on-one support uh, for that. Um, So everything that we do is aimed at capacity building. Again, we don't want to be like an expensive uh, resource that people have to pay a lot of money for. Uh, we don't want to be putting out work that's like a slog to read through. Um, we put everything up for free. We write them in a way that doesn't require an academic background or an extensive background in, uh, in research or statistics to understand. Um, and one of the things that, like you mentioned, that we uh, have recently put out is uh, a study looking at how, how people in different parts of the world uh, think about uh, what beliefs they have about chickens and fishes um, and how that can sort of uh, relate to their willingness to, you know, to reduce their consumption of chickens or fishes uh, or to sign a petition um, to improve the welfare of those animals. So this is perhaps the most important, it sounds a little wonky, but 
hang on, fasten your seatbelts, because this is truly the most important subject we could discuss on planet Earth right now. And I'll tell you why. Because the planet is dying. And the reason it is dying is because of animal agriculture. Okay, it is, everybody debates what exact percentage, but nobody disputes that it is a leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions. It is at the very least a leading, but many make a powerful argument, the leading cause of habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, human world hunger, because we're 8 billion animals feeding and killing 80 billion animals every year, human disease, heart disease, pandemics. Uh, the New York Times concluded that the um, growing body of scientific community, the scientific community has concluded that the pandemic started at the Wuhan wet market, which is a slaughterhouse. It's a retail slaughterhouse, okay? So pandemics, human health, heart disease kills one out of every four people, okay? Cancer, processed meat is officially cancer causing. So for all of these reasons and more, um, figuring out why people think it's okay to eat chickens and don't regard them as sentient beings and ditto for fish will potentially solve all those problems. Because guess what? Of the 80 billion land animals, farmed animals, who, I say who, are killed every year, about 68 billion of them are chickens. So if we just eliminated the killing of chickens, we would literally hit the tipping point tomorrow in our efforts to create a plant-based world so that we can avoid a climate apocalypse. Your thoughts on that, Zach? I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, the the numbers of of chickens and fishes that are that are killed every year for food is is truly, like you said, massive. Um, about seventy billion chickens, right, slaughtered each year. Just to repeat that number because it's it's so immense. Um, plus, you know, three hundred million cows, one and a half billion pigs. It's it's these numbers are, are really massive across the world. And that's every year, right? So I think uh, when people think of animals used for food or farmed animals, they I think they tend to probably think of things like cows and pigs, um, uh, and you know other mammals that maybe we feel more similar to, but they don't think about uh, chickens maybe as often, maybe because they feel like they can relate to them less, and fishes even even less so, um, and you know, even though fish is usually marketed as like a more sustainable option. Um, so you, you know, that sort of, uh, the greenhouse emissions and stuff that you mentioned maybe aren't considered as much, um, even though that actually is a very large factor. Um, there's another aspect with fishes that I think people also don't consider. And that's just, again, the, the sheer number. Um, and what's really interesting about that is, you know, I can tell you the number of chickens, right? Like you mentioned that 68 billion a year number, but I can't actually tell you the number of fishes because nobody actually tracks that. Um, instead, they, you know, this goes to show you how much they're thought of as objects or as a crop rather than living creatures. Um, the amount of fishes killed each year is measured by weight. Um, and in, in 2018, that number was nearly 100 million tons. Um, which there's a group called Fish Count that tries to estimate what that number is in actual lives lost. Uh, and they estimate between 800 billion and 2.3 trillion fishes caught from the wild each year. So over, over a trillion likely. Um, and add to that another 50 to 170 billion on fish farms. So again, the amount of lives we're talking about here is, is really immense. So um, in either case, uh, making a 
any sort of dent in the number of chickens or fishes killed would, would have a huge impact um, uh, on a number of, of things that are really um, affecting the world right now. So I remember I was at a hotel and this very nice lady in an apron was trying to get people to come into her restaurant inside the hotel. And she's like, we have this, we have that, we have wings. And I went up to her and I said, you know, when you throw off that word wings, you should really keep in mind that you're talking about an animal who had those wings and those wings were taken from that animal. These are not objects. And she looked at me like I was, like she was shocked and said, well, I eat meat and walked away. So I feel like just pointing it out to people may not work. Um, although you never know what the impact is going to be as that person ponders that question, because she didn't ignore me. She definitely was like knocked on her heels a little bit. And, and, and it did make her think even for a second, then she came up with an answer. But how do we get people to change their attitudes about chickens? And what did you find out in your studies about people's attitudes towards chickens specifically? We'll get to fish later, but let's talk about chickens. Sure. Yeah. So um, I should say that the countries that we asked, because there's, the results are different for different countries, right? We're talking about different groups of people, different cultures, different considerations. So um, we asked people in the U.S., Canada, Brazil, China, and India about their, their thoughts on chickens and fishes, but we, like you said, we can get to those. Um, and uh, in, in the US, um, we actually, the way our sort of our research was designed is we asked people a question about or a bunch of different beliefs and asked them how they felt about chickens. Um, and then we asked them uh, if they would be willing to reduce their consumption of chickens or if they would be willing to sort of like sign a petition that would inc that would improve the conditions in which chickens are raised. Um, and in the US, and this is without sort of any like real strong prompting to try to get them to change their, change their consumption of chickens, we just said, would you be willing to, to pledge to do this? 31% um, of people said yes, that they would be willing to eat less chicken, which is, you know, almost a third of, of people just, just asking them, right? So uh, like you mentioned, it, I think people, when they're asked, they're forced to sort of think about it a little bit. And some of those people will be willing. Uh, and some of those, like the person that you spoke to, may be a little bit more hesitant and try and maybe get defensive or try to try to think about what, why they don't want to change that. Um and like I said, we, we asked people in five different countries and, and in the U.S. it was the lowest at 31. Canada, um, not surprisingly, pretty similar to the U.S. in a lot of ways, 37%. Um, Brazil, about half of people said that they would eat less chicken. Um, and in China and India, uh, three out of four people said that they would be willing to eat less chicken just when they were asked. Um, so in different places, people are a little bit more open to considering that just, just by being asked. So I think some of, some of the time we may be like overthinking um, what ways to get people to sort of uh, change their behaviors. But speaking about um, the US, for example, uh, in particular, um, the, the sort of things that are, that are associated, the beliefs that are most like go hand in hand with willingness to reduce the amount of chicken somebody's eating uh, are beliefs like chickens are beautiful, uh, chickens need room to explore and exercise, and chickens are loving. So these are all sort of more positive things about the chicken, as opposed actually to something like, you know, um, uh, chickens suffer or something something along those lines, right? Jane, you and you or I may be the kind of person who 
uh, is really moved by something like uh, an image of a, of a chicken on a factory farm or something like that. But uh, for other people, things like just thinking that chickens are beautiful might actually be more associated with, with willingness to sort of reduce the amount of chicken that they're eating. Well, I think that's really important. Um, we have a streaming network, Unchained TV, and you can download it. In fact, if you uh, grab that, you could uh, download it. Let me see if I can get it right here. There you go. You could just take a picture of that and download it. Unchained TV is our new global streaming network. You can also go to unchainedtv.com and um, access it there. You can download it on your phone. You can download it on your either iPhone or Android phone, as well as Roku device, Apple TV device, and Amazon Fire Stick. And if you have an LG or Samsung Smart TV, this is a global streaming network. And what we do is we put out hundreds of videos, documentaries, vegan cooking shows, travel shows, music videos, all with a plant-based theme. Now, the reason I bring that up is that we often wonder, you know, what is the most effective kind of video? Uh, and it's, it's very interesting that you say showing people the torture, which is unfortunately now very easy to show because we live in a videotape world, despite ag gag laws, people go in to these factory farms and these slaughterhouses and they take footage, uh, often making headlines, often getting arrested, put on trial. Uh, there's all sorts of constitutional free speech issues, but um, it's an ongoing battle. Uh, we're doing better in some states than others in the quest to be able to show what's going on in these factory farms. There's no real farms today. I mean, there are a few, just like there are some ghost towns, but the real industry are these giant, giant concentrated animal feeding operations that if you see a drone shot, it looks like a massive, massive series of warehouses, hundreds of thousands of animals in them. They never see the light of day. They never touch grass. Uh, it's um, morally reprehensible. Okay, that's how I'm describing it. And everybody who participates in it is participating in something that is truly wrong. I don't care what your religion is or whether you have no religion, but if you, you see it, your conscience will tell you there's something really wrong with this. And part of the reason it goes on where you have 100,000 chickens packed into a, a warehouse where then they, because there's no cages, say, it's cage-free. Oh, it's cage-free. And last night I saw two ads. I was watching the news for eggs that are cage-free. What they don't realize is they're packed in there. Like uh, uh, being a New Yorker, I'd say the IRT at rush hour. You're packed in like, uh, is it speciesist to say like sardines in a can? they're packed okay they live their lives just packed the the uh, level of uh, space they have is something like this and uh, they can still call it cage free now why is this allowed to continue because people um like the taste of chicken and as somebody said uh jennifer uh, Stojkovic, who was the founder of the Vegan Women's Summit, we have a branding problem. I just interviewed her recently, and I think she's brilliant. She wrote The Future of Food is Female. She held the Vegan Women's Summit here in LA, which I attended, which 
was filled with more than 800 top business women, tech people, um, people, Silicon Valley people, taking a, an entirely different approach to this issue, very similar to what you're talking about. Uh, not so much protesting, but finding the win for the consumers. And what she said uh, when I was interviewing her is, we have a branding problem. And the problem is that most people in study after study say they care about animals, they don't wanna see animals suffer, and they continue to buy products that are the result of that suffering. And so that's a disconnect. How do we resolve the disconnect? I don't think there's any one way. I think we do need protests, but we also need the alternative businesses. But we also need what Phonolytics is doing, the analysis, because I think everybody's looking for that secret answer. What's gonna make somebody click and change? And so um, when you say showing images of suffering is not as effective as showing a happy chicken who is displaying some kind of personality, I think that's really important. Um, so how does that translate into our movement? Yeah, so I, I should say that the way that our particular results, uh, we got them was, was by showing them particular statements about them. The images uh, question, I, I think is still sort of up in the air. There's, there's some good research out there, but what basically this is a very young field of research, right? It's only it's only in the last few years that people have really um, on a on a broader scale started to care about this, and that may not translate always into eating less meat. Um, but uh, again, it's still it's still a pretty young field, so there's still a lot of research to be done, um, and uh, it also sort of depends on on the person, I guess is the is sort of the short answer. Um, like you're saying, everybody sort of wants this kind of clean answer of oh well, if we just do this that'll convince everyone. And that's unfortunately not how it necessarily works. Um, but that's where an organization like Phonolytics kind of comes into play is that we try to find out, well, what are those differences between people? Where, um, like I was saying, we ask people in different countries because somebody in the US might have a very different feeling and what works for them might not work for somebody in Brazil or somebody in India. Um, so it, it's tricky, I think, and it's, it's interesting because, like I said, chickens are beautiful or chickens are loving. Those sorts of things, in the U.S. at least, are, are things that are more associated with people like reducing their consumption of chicken. But um, other things, like many chicken farms have horrible conditions. That belief, uh, people who hold that belief, are more likely to sign a petition to improve the welfare of chickens. So um, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I, I think that there are a lot of people out there who maybe want their food to come from better conditions, um, but don't necessarily haven't made that sort of connection with, well, regardless, this animal is still being raised and killed for the purpose of somebody eating it. Um, and I think that sort of trying to bridge that gap and making that clearer to people um, is one way to, to do that. And oftentimes right, the approach then is to show um, what slaughter looks like or what a factory farm looks like. Um, and I think uh, both of the sort of welfare petition aspect, uh, that's a valid way to do it. Um, and trying to get people to reduce their consumption is a valid way to do it. Um, but like you said, Jane, I think that a, a diversity of, of like tactics is, is, a, is a very useful way um, to, to go about this because a lot of different people are motivated by different things. We actually recently did a study um, trying to look at what people, uh, what makes people want to go 
uh, vegan or vegetarian. And we found that 42% of the people we talked to uh, tried to reduce their meat consumption um, for health reasons. Um, so that wasn't at 20% for animal protection reasons and 18% for environmental reasons, right? So that's twice as many people uh, were motivated by health than they were by protecting animals. So in the, in the end for us, um, as much as I want everybody to care about the animal aspect, if people are eating less meat because they are concerned about their health, I'm okay with that because at the end of the day, those animals are still being, are still being saved. Well, uh, you're raising so many important points, and we are talking with an amazing researcher from Faunalytics, which is a nonprofit which does this kind of deep dive analysis to try to come up with strategies to help people transition to a plant-based lifestyle for their health, for obviously compassionate animals, but also uh, to fight climate change as animal agriculture is a leading cause of climate change. There was just a huge article in the Washington Post that it's Americans love of beef that is causing the Amazon to be destroyed. Uh, and it was not written by a, a vegan to my knowledge. It was just a Wall Street, excuse me, a I believe it was a Washington Post investigation. Um, I just read it and I just got, I think it was a Washington Post, but I was reading it and wow, it was, it, it sounded like it was written by an animal activist because it really laid out the case that it's Americans love of beef. You know, people could say, well, they're destroying the Amazon. Why are they doing that? Well, what are, what's on your plate? Maybe it's because of what you're eating. And yet a lot of these people will call themselves environmentalists. I mean, we've got to get through that disconnect, but, um, I want to talk to you about, I watched this documentary, and of course, we've all read about how social media is um, manipulated. And uh, for sometimes for political purposes, I think you all know what I'm talking about. We don't need to get into the details, but uh, there was a great documentary about um, Cambridge Analytica, and it focused on how they actually got down to the precincts of what they needed to tell people in various precincts. Now I'm watching this and going, why can't the good guys use this kind of information? Because you're absolutely right. Different people are motivated by different things. I was confronted and that's how I went vegan. I was a local news anchor who was vegetarian and in walks Howard Lyman, a fourth generation cattle rancher who had been on Oprah. Uh, he had uh, revealed the secrets, the secret horrors of the cattle industry. And he wrote a book called Mad Cowboy. And Oprah was sued. He was this cause celebre, famous during that time because he was in the news. And I interviewed him. And afterwards, he came up to my cubicle with his publicist. And they said, we hear you're a vegetarian. And I said, yes. And they said, well, do you eat dairy? And I hung my head. He had just talked about all the horrors, babies ripped from the mothers and the boys thrown in veal crates or shot or left to die and all of the terrible things. And I said, yes. And they said, liquid meat. They pointed their finger right at my nose, liquid meat like that. I went vegan at that moment. Now, if they had been more polite and said, well, we really think you should consider possibly, I probably wouldn't have even heard it, but the way they did it, was very confrontational, peaceful. They didn't hit my nose. Uh, but so I, the reason I say that is that I was confronted into going vegan. So people can watch documentaries, they can be confronted. Um, 
And, and then you have to break it down according to demographics. What I've heard is that people over 40 are going vegan for their health because let's face it, the fast food American diet is just horrific and people are suffering from high cholesterol, they need statin drugs, they need erectile dysfunction drugs, and blah, 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 blah. A lot of that, a lot of that stuff they wouldn't need if they were on a healthy plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet. Younger people tend to go vegan because of uh, concern for animals and the environment. So, I mean, I guess my question to you is, if those people can figure out how to target people right down to where they live, what block, why can't we do that? The, the simple answer is money. Um, the, there's a lot of money uh, in, well, in that case, in politics. Um, and those people can afford to buy essentially big data. Um, and they can use that big data to, you know, all of the sort of, we hear about tracking of, of our online activity and, and things like that. They can buy that data from the companies that we all use that track that data and they can match it up with other data about individuals. And they can say, okay, well, people who click on things about this or visit this sort of website might be, have this sort of interest. And so we can focus on them. And um, we, uh, as a movement uh, to date, don't have the money at the very least invested in that particular, um, that area. Um, it's really hard to target people for specific things like that. There's also been, you know, decades and decades of, of political science research that um, that is like a foundation for that sort of that sort of work that we could apply in certain ways, probably to the work that we are doing as as advocates for animals, um, but which to date just hasn't had the the funding behind it for us. So um, it's actually uh, an important point that you bring up and something that we're uh, planning to explore very soon. Uh, we're going to be doing some work trying to figure out what approaches to meat reduction. Uh, different groups of people are the most open to based on demographics. So say you're talking to, you know, an, an older white man in the South. Um, how, what's the thing that might be the most likely to get somebody like that to eat less meat? Um, that might be a tall task, but uh, our research will let us say something like, hey, you might have more success asking them to be vegan after 6 p.m. than to take part in veganuary, for example, just as like a foot in the door. Um, or you might say, you know, or you try to figure out if they're more concerned about their health, like you say, or, um, or uh, the environment or animals. Um, and you might find out that you'll have more success with trying to start them to reduce the amount of beef they eat rather than the amount of chicken that they eat. Um, so we're trying to get started on that sort of research because not a lot has been done um, to date uh, in that specific targeting way, especially by, by really narrow geographic locations, like you're saying, like down to the precinct. Um, and we're, we're gonna try to, try to do some of that work, but the reason uh, there hasn't been that much done to date and the reason that there uh, won't be that much done in the near future um, is that there just hasn't been that much funding to this kind of work. So if there are people out there, um, and that's not to say that we don't have, you know, excellent funders, um, really great organizations and, and philanthropists. Um, but of course, um, this is not, the vast majority of people are not vegan or vegetarian. Um, and so the vast majority of people are not as interested in putting their money towards this sort of thing. Um, and if, if we had some of the same funding that, uh, that, like political organizations have, um, then we might have the same, some of the same uh, opportunities. So um, I'll, I'll quickly plug our website and say faunalytics.org for anybody who is interested uh, in, in donating. 
All right, we're going to take a short break here on Voice America Radio, but we're going to stay live on Facebook. We'll be back uh, on on uh, Voice America Radio in a second. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Influencers Channel. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We get Guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1 866 472 5795. That's 1 866 472 5795. You may also send an email in to News at gmail.com. Now back to the show. We are here with Zach Woldirk of Faunalytics, a research scientist who is doing global studies. United States, Canada, India, Latin America, trying to find out how people feel about chickens and fish because those are the two categories of animals who, and I would say who, are killed in the greatest number. Uh, literally 80 billion farmed animals are killed, land animals, not including fish. If you put fish in, it's in the trillions. But every year, 80 billion land animals uh, who want to live just as much as you or I, who have families, who have mothers, who had fathers, even though mothers were forcibly impregnated, we know what that's called, starts with an R, and dads too, you know, not, not, there's no making love on these factory farms, let's put it that way. Um, but those animals are killed and we're trying to find out like if we could figure out how to get people to reduce their chicken intake, it would be literally three quarters of the battle won because 68 billion of the animals of the 80 billion are chickens. So um, Zach, you did a study about chickens. So let's dive deep into that now and get the headline. What is the headline for our news article about your research into how people feel about chickens? Yeah, the headline is uh, you have to consider the people that you're talking to. Uh, and that's because these the things that affect people's opinions or the things that are associated with people willing being willing to eat less chicken um, can change a lot depending on the country that you're talking to, um, the people that you're talking to. Um, so uh, what might work for an advocate in the U.S. might not work for an advocate in India, for example. And so that's a really, it's very important to consider the context that you're working in. Um, different things are relevant in different countries. And even within the same country, there's often differences uh, in how people think of different animals. Um, so uh, it's not the simplest answer, unfortunately, but it is something that is really important to consider. And I think something that will make advocates a lot more effective if they, if they consider that. Well, what was like the aha moment? 
like you're talking, let's start with the United States since mm -hmm. that's where we are at right now, although this is a global issue. So in the United States, uh, I drive by and I see people lined up around the block at Chick-fil-A. That's chicken. Uh, and it's disheartening because there's more of them popping up everywhere. And by the way, Chick-fil-A, you're invited on any time. I'd love to dialogue with you. But um, what it, to me, I've even had people say to me, I don't eat meat. I just eat chicken. As, as if chicken isn't meat. I think that's one thing that is something that we could broach and how would we broach it? So when in the United States, when you're asking people about how they feel about chickens, what were some of the highlights? Yeah, so um, we asked everybody about uh, 30, who took our survey about 30 different beliefs. Um, and some of the ones that uh, people were, that were most associated at least with people being willing to, to eat less chicken were chickens are beautiful, chickens need room to explore and exercise and chickens are loving. But that is, it's actually, those things have the, the greatest sort of, they go hand in hand the most with actual people actually being willing to eat less chicken. But some of the more common beliefs among people were just that chickens uh, can feel pain was actually the top belief in the US. 95% um, of people we asked uh, said that they believe that chickens can feel pain. Um, which is, which is very interesting, uh, that that doesn't necessarily translate to, there's a sort of cognitive dissonance, right? People just disconnect between what people sort of believe if you ask them and what, uh, how that translates to their actual actions. Uh, the very close behind that 94% of people, um, believe that chicken is a good source of protein. So that might be one of the reasons why people are sort of a little, a little hesitant to actually, um, you know, actually make that sort of connection because they're, they're thinking, oh, this is a source of protein for me, even though there are plenty of other options, as we know, um, plant-based options that are sources of protein, right? So we're that trying to sort of- for us that have zero cholesterol. Right. Cholesterol leads to plaque, which leads to heart disease, which is America's leading killer. Mm -hmm. and, but I, I should say that right after um, that sort of protein belief that people hold is uh, almost 90% of people think that chickens need room to explore and exercise. So there is this sort of awareness that people have. Um, people also recognize that air and water quality are important to chickens, that chickens can feel stressed, that they can communicate with each other. So there are a lot of positive things that people do believe about chickens. Um, and again, these results are for the US um, that we still haven't been able to exactly translate into, um, into action on behalf of animals. Um, and what's the roadblock there? I think there's, I think it's, I think it's hard to say for sure. I think there's a lot of different roadblocks. I think that uh, people, for some people, it might be uh, perceived sort of financial obstacles. Um, and I say perceived because, the, you know, that's tricky. It depends on, on where you live, what kind of access to food you have and stuff like that. People don't, everybody doesn't need to be eating an Impossible Burger, for, for example, right? Something yeah, that might and, be- Yeah, and Impossible Burgers are not heavily subsidized by the U.S. government, whereas chicken is- there's something like $38 billion of yearly subsidies that, that end up benefiting animal agriculture in one way, shape or form. So that's part of the problem is that uh, the government, while they purport to want to solve climate change and improve people's health is, is basically keeping this whole operation going. Because if a, chick, if a chicken breast costs $20, you can be darn sure that they'd be looking at alternatives like seitan and jackfruit and and tofu and all these other alternatives that I don't even know what chicken tastes like, but uh, people have been eating some of these 
nuggets that are plant-based and I've eaten them too. And people say to me, it tastes just like chicken. I can't tell the difference. I mean, it's not like people are eating. Well, actually I sat next to a guy (laughs) when I had a job, he would eat an actual chicken that was a roasted chicken every day. And I went to the management and I said, I can't take it. I can't sit next to this. It's killing me. I can't smell the smell. So he was forced to go into another room to do that every day. (laughs) So there are some people who actually eat chickens, but most people are consuming chickens that are heavily breaded and processed. You know, there was this news story that really struck me the other day where a woman was eating a slice of ham and a nipple uh, appeared on the ham. She was at a fast food restaurant and she flipped out flipped out oh my god well what did she think she was eating she you know it's an animal who had a nipple it's like the disconnect to me it's the disconnect that we have to solve that is the key thing so what did you learn about the disconnect well so the the disconnect is is something that's that's Really, it's it's hard to say for sure. I guess is is the unfortunate answer. Um, different people are are able to to make that disconnect for for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think some of it is right the fact that we call um, cow meat beef, for example. Right, there is this sort of even in the language that we use, there is this separation between what. Uh, the animal actually is and what the the thing is in people's minds that they're consuming. Um, I can say that that I, we we recently did a study. Um, our our excellent research director, Dr. Joe Anderson, led um, on the motivations and influences behind people's like ability to go vegan or vegetarian. And we found that people who have this sort of self driven motivation, this kind of desire inside to for moral reasons or something like that. Um, do a lot better at um, at committing to their, their goal of being vegetarian or vegan than people who are sort of doing it for like social pressure reasons. Um, so if there's a way to use that sort of kind of peer pressure um, to encourage people to sort of like have that kind of moral shift inside them, those people will be a lot more um, a lot more successful um, at actually going vegan uh, or vegetarian. So I think it's it's important to try to instill that. Uh, have that sort of uh, switch flip inside them and, and realize that, oh, this is, this is um, something that I think is wrong. And th- those people will be a lot more likely to actually um, reduce their consumption. Well, I mean, do you also look at societal changes? Uh, I often uh, talk about the change with cigarettes. And when I was a teenager, I'm not proud. I smoked cigarettes because I wanted to be cool. And uh then I never will forget seeing that ad. It's a classic ad. It did more to end smoking than anything else. And it was called Smoking is Very Glamorous. And it was a very craggly old woman who had a hole in her throat because she had cancer and she was smoking the cigarette through the hole in her neck and the smoke was coming out. And that killed any hint of glamor associated with smoking for me. Um, and so, um, also my dad died of cancer and he had uh, been a smoker. Um, so then there's fur, fur. I personally believe that fur has, you know, we've protested against fur for, for decades and decades, maybe even centuries, who knows, but recently, uh, something switched 
And there was uh, the pandemic. And in Denmark, they had to kill 18 million mink. And there were vats and dumpsters of bloody mink. And then they buried them in shallow graves. And they came up in the shallow graves and they ended up calling them zombie mink. And I personally feel like that went a long way toward robbing mink or fur of any hint of glamour. Just became a gross thing. So where where do we stand with that? Because you know when you really think of meat, it, there's so many gross factors. There's feces in, in so much meat uh, when they do studies of the ground beef, et cetera. Um, what about the gross factor? Yeah, I actually think that there's a lot of work still, unfortunately, um, to be done on that. Um, when, when talking about uh, chickens or fish, um, I think that people don't, generally people think that fish, for example, is a very healthy animal to eat and they don't necessarily consider the, you know, the conditions on, for example, a fish farm in which um, they're swimming around in, well, put it this way, there's no uh, bathroom that the fish can leave and go to. Right. So things, things of, of that nature um, that people just aren't, aren't considering um, with their, with the animals that they're eating still. Um, and I think that there is still sort of that, that separation between um, thinking of it as thinking of, of meat as some sort of um, product that doesn't actually come from the animal. Right. So I think that emphasizing when talking about these beliefs that maybe are a little bit more effective for people. So again, in the US, uh, chickens need room to explore and exercise or something like that, right? Saying like, yes, you believe this and that will make you maybe less likely to uh, consume these things. Um, but there are other things that, that people just aren't making that same uh, connection with. And, and we didn't necessarily find a lot of people who are considering the, the health aspects of, of chicken or fish as something that was uh, associated with them eating any less um, chickens or, or fish. So um, even when people know that, it may not, it still doesn't necessarily translate. Um, and that's why we just need to be able to do uh, more research into these sorts of, sorts of things to figure out what are the ways that we can actually get that. If they hold this belief, why doesn't that translate? And, and again, more, more research is unfortunately necessary to be able to figure out the best ways to convert that belief, I guess, into action. Now, I often wonder when I'm talking to people who have gone vegan, what is it about them that makes them change? For a lot of people, and I know many animal activists, it was an emotional experience as a child. Um, in my case, that my parents gave my dog away. That made me an animal activist at about the age of eight, whenever that happened, nine. Um, but also, uh, I, I grew up in a primarily pescatarian household. Uh, it, we thought we were vegetarian, but we were far from it. But we didn't eat, uh, we didn't have meat in the house. Uh, we didn't eat it, uh, really. I mean, there might have been a couple of exceptions. So we actually thought of ourselves as vegetarians. Far from it. We ate fish. We had shellfish. We had eggs. We had milk, cow's milk. But um, but at least it explains where uh, my background, why I would switch those two things. Do you do any research into um, maybe having focus groups with vegans? What made you switch and then come up with categories? Okay, here's here's what happened with them. How do we replicate that in the general population? Yeah. So. Um, I had mentioned before that we, we did talk to some, some, uh, a lot of people actually, um, who 
who were trying to sort of like embarking on their their vegan or uh, vegetarian sort of switch, right? From going from from eating meat uh, or or dairy or other animal products to to trying to reduce that. Um, and uh, we we found that um, I, I like I was saying, there's there's 42 percent of people were motivated by health, um, which is is really uh, a really interesting finding because again, somebody like you or I are, are motivated more so by by the animals themselves, right? Not necessarily how it affects us. So there is these, these sort of important differences in what it is that affects people's sort of like consideration, why they actually want to sort of like make that switch. Um, so trying to figure out which people it is though that are going to be motivated by health and which people it is that are going to be motivated by animal uh, protection, that's... That, that, well, what they were saying at the Vegan Women's Summit is that some of their studies show that people 40 and over are motivated by health and people younger are motivated by animal activism and uh, environmentalism specifically. Uh, and then there's all sorts of other demographic breakdowns, um, ethnicity, race, uh, socioeconomic status, um, I mean, there's a million ways to break this down and find out what's appealing to different people. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that people who do yoga and uh, are into that uh, might have a different motivation from people who are golfers, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, so far, we've we've mostly been focused on sort of the more kind of like traditional, I guess, demographic maybe uh, measures you might say. So like gender, race, age, those sorts of things, right? We found, for example, in the U.S., that um, men uh, were less likely than uh, women or people of other genders to take the chicken diet pledge, um, right? To reduce their consumption of chicken. Um, but actually, we didn't find any other differences based on gender. So in terms of fish consumption or willingness to, to sign a petition, those things, gender wasn't a factor there. So in certain cases, like chicken, and maybe that's just the way that we sort of associate um, eating chicken with this sort of like masculine, right, like like wings or something right along those lines that are considered just traditional man food or something along those lines. Um, that matters for chicken. It doesn't matter as much for fish. Um People who, uh, people who are, are white are less likely to take the chicken diet pledge as well than people of other races. And so there's all these sort of specifics where it actually matters more for one type of animal than it does for other types of animals. So there's a lot to sort of continue to unpack and try to understand about the sort of social or cultural sort of differences that different groups um, might have. You mentioned like golfers, for example, Th that group might have um, particular associations with a certain type of, of meat uh, or other animal product that, um, that other groups don't necessarily have that makes it less likely. Maybe there's a social status thing involved or something like that, um, that makes people less likely to, to be willing to change their behaviors. I think uh, it's so interesting. I mean, if we were to come up with the profile of somebody who is most likely to switch toward an entirely plant-based diet or mostly plant-based, that would be fabulous. But what I find that is, is sort of encouraging and maddening at the same time is that people you'd think would be all on board with this are often very resistant, dismissive, condescending, and people you wouldn't necessarily suspect would be into it are much more open. Every single person who walks into my apartment, whether to do a plumbing job or anything else, they get the vegan message. 
And so it's just a cross section of people. And uh, just the other day, this there was a, a street sweeping uh, truck and I had an issue with something and I went out and I started talking to them. And next thing you know, we're talking about veganism. And the guy says, my two kids are vegan. And then the other guy says, my wife wants to go vegan. I run into the house, I grab some books and I ran out and gave it to them. Now, uh, you know, I, I was so thrilled, um, but then you have somebody who might be considered, uh, oh, you know, an egghead, the best and the brightest, uh, best schools, PhDs, that should be able to connect the dots that this is a really self-destructive behavior pattern and they are entirely resistant, dismissive, condescending, and you can't get through to them, it, which I say it's an addiction because uh, I have the dubious honor of being a, uh, a somewhat of an expert in addiction. I'm 27 years sober and I've written a couple of books about it. And some of the smartest people can be the worst addicts because their mind is hijacked by the addiction. So they're thinking about how do I get my next fix? And that's where their mind, their, their very smart mind and their clever thinking is, is leading them. Not, uh, well, this isn't really good for me. I shouldn't be doing this because they're not in charge of their mind. Their mind has been hijacked by the addiction. And uh, that's why the dichotomy of acknowledging that you're powerless over an addiction is the only way that you can deal with it. Acknowledge, it's a dichotomy. I'm powerless. And that's the only power I have is to understand that I'm completely powerless because the definition of addiction is no choice. You have no choice. You have to do it. So have you looked at the addictive component? We know cheese is addictive, that in the casein, there's a morphine-like substance that, uh, that nature put in there to get baby cows to drink their mother's milk and cheese concentrates it, which is why people have the hardest time giving cheese up of anything. Yeah, we haven't looked at the at an addictive nature of it, um, but I think that there are, it's absolutely worth looking into more. I think just in general, people's behavior, once it's ingrained, especially in, you know, uh, American culture, uh, U.S. culture, we, people are so used to um, the importance, uh, perceived importance of, of meat on their plate or animal products. And so they're so used to it and society, you know, we're constantly bombarding with ads for it and, and things like that, um, that I think that makes it very difficult for people to feel um to even sort of conceptualize it. And then when they, the idea of, of going vegan, and then once they do, um, even that idea kind of enters their brain, um, it's a lot, it's still, there's a lot of social pressure to, to not, um, to not go vegan. Um, so I think that's a, that's a, a big factor. I think it's just the sort of societal kind of reinforcement of, um, continuing to eat animal products. Um, and I think, you know, there, there are fast food restaurants, for example, now that have, uh, option, you know, vegan options. Um, but even still they, they're not necessarily available in the same way, uh, for everybody, depending, you know, depends on the situation and the kind of food you're looking for. But I think people are, are more comfortable with this sort of idea of like a processed, a burger or something along those lines, right. Rather than like, um, rice and beans or something, you know, an alternative like that. Um, and those sorts of things 
are, are also, I think, important to shift because there is the, like you're, like you're saying, the sort of physical dependency or addiction to this product, but there's also these sort of social aspects that continue to, to reinforce that sort of behavior. Uh, have you broken this down like into an Excel spreadsheet where you can, I mean, it seems like, you know, generalities are great, but at a certain point, I think there should be a way. Okay, Unchained TV, we're very excited to announce we have a corporate sponsor, Wild Earth. Uh, before we went on, I was working on a, a news release for Wild Earth. On my computer, an ad for Wild Earth, that's the vegan dog food, pops up literally while I'm typing, there's an ad for Wild Earth. So they can figure out they being the big they, what we are focused on at any one time. Is there any way that we can use some of that technology to try to make it a force for good? I mean, Wild Earth is good. Unfortunately, a lot of the other ads I see are not so great, but um, can we use the technology that's available to take some of, input some of your research findings and come up with action points? Yeah, I think that that's that's an excellent idea and something something that we're absolutely thinking about and trying to figure out what the best the best way to do it is. It's it's a little bit it can be tricky, you know, if you're looking up right a specific brand, that brand can be like, oh, this brand was searched for by this person. Let me show them an ad for something like that or something similar to that. Um, I think targeting people with if they're looking up, you know, some sort of chicken product and trying to show them sort of a chicken alternative. Um, that is is certainly an option in terms of actually making that that deeper shift in somebody being like, oh, not only am, is this other thing maybe the same price or cheaper or healthier for me or something like that, but making that deeper internal change of oh, I believe that this is this is wrong. That might be a little bit more difficult to to do through that sort of targeted ad approach. But um, that said, we've been doing some research uh, uh, on which methods of advocacy are the most effective. Um, and we did find that, that news articles and, and social media posts about eating animal products um, for people who are already sort of interested in reducing the amount of, of meat that they eat, those, those people will eat uh, less meat if they see those sort of like news articles or, or social media posts. So there are ways that we, that we know of so far um, to sort of target those people, it's more of a matter of translating that information into the actual targeting. And that's, that's something that we're definitely thinking about. Um, like I'd mentioned earlier, there's a sort of um, uh, marketing kind of issue, right, where the, the marketing budgets of these organizations um, need to be lined up. And so um, I think that working with companies that, that make um, non-meat products, uh, animal product, animal-free products, um, those organizations and an organization um, like ours that does research could potentially, you know, sort of uh, work together or, or use the same kind of research that we've been doing to sort of increase the strength of that and, and make those people not just interested in a product, but interested in the animals uh, and, and saving the animals. Well, I just want to say, Zach, it's been so great talking to you for the hour. It's zip by. I can't believe it. I could talk to you for hours because this, I think, is the key, the absolute key. So support Phonolytics. Uh, what an incredible organization, a nonprofit. And we are going to write an article on Unchained TV 
about this conversation with links to the study so that you can really take a deep dive yourself. Uh, I do feel that uh, we need all spokes in the wheel, protests, as well as businesses and tech and analysis and statistics to guide us. So this is a very important part of the puzzle to create a more compassionate, healthier, and more sustainable world. And the clock is ticking. So thank you again, Zach, uh, and please support Faunalytics. And we will see you next time here on Unchained TV, Voice America Radio, and Facebook. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.